can you tell me a little bit about uh, you know what you all do over there, and uh, and uh, would love to converse with you about you know how you've grown your business and how you initially started your business as well. Yeah, so we're a public-private partnership. So okay. We're a nonprofit. Structure. Um, we raised uh, fifty-one million in private corporate financing, about another five million in public financing. So it's overwhelmingly privately led. We have forty-three CEOs on our board. And the goal is to build an inclusive economy that is more equitable, sustainable, and doing it on a metropolitan scale versus the city of Sacramento or the city of San Francisco. Um, as you know, investment in jobs doesn't really recognize political subdivisions. So your ability to create a seamless experience for investment in jobs, focusing on competitiveness is really you know, what we do. Okay, um, so it's interesting because you have, you said, how many CEOs do you have on your board? 43. 43 CEOs, okay. So did you, did you start the company? Are you a board member or yeah. were, you, were you placed into the company as a CEO? No, I launched it from a file five years ago. Okay, wow, yeah. jeez. Okay, so quick growth, um, okay. So what what got you the what what was your ambition behind starting this company and i want to go into the process of getting all these board members on board with you um but what was the motivation behind starting this company what what, what was your your underlying you know why behind starting it well you know my interest is uh you know you know seeing you know my parents had eighth grade education you know, my mom nice. was an immigrant, my dad was a two marine, and, you know, they were big believers in the American dream. And as you know, the American dream is uh, getting out of reach for some cases, two thirds of America. And a lot of that has to do with how local markets focus on competitiveness and perform. So 2008, Sacramento got clobbered due to the recession. Um, I was friends with Kevin Johnson, the mayor of Phoenix, the mayor of Sacramento, who I know in Phoenix, he was a Phoenix Suns great. Uh, and, you know, I started helping him in about 2012, think about what to do about all the lagging indicators in the Sacramento economy. And uh, lo and behold, I ended up coming up here to launch the organization from scratch. So we started with a file and a couple people. And, uh, you know, we, we built it into, you know, uh, what I what I think is a really impressive and admired organization that's having a real impact on the future of California and the state capital region. I love that. And uh, were you were you an entrepreneur before, or is this like so? Obviously, it seems like you have all these relationships. Obviously, you probably had some type of entrepreneurial background. Like, what what other companies have you started before? I want to start from like the very beginning. Yeah. So the first organization I started was called Southwest Michigan First. Similar yeah. situation, um, the southwestern part of Michigan had the um, most negatively impacted economy in the late 90s. This is before Michigan started to destabilize. And, um, you know, I built, uh, primarily there, I built a science and technology strategy. So I built, directly and indirectly, I built about four venture funds. I ran an angel investor network. Wow. I uh, launched about 30, yeah, 31 uh science enterprises, everything from small molecule development to, um, you know, uh, immortalized cell lines, robotic platforms to, 
contract research organizations. Um, and um, I spent six years building that organization. It was actually the first nonprofit to ever make the Fast 50 list, you know. Um, and these are all structured as nonprofits because, you know, that's how you get the corporate financing and then that's how you manage the risk. And then, so really what we do is we create risk vehicles in the market. So instead of having four or five CEOs take big risks on their own to try to do something about the economy, you know, you build a network of CEOs, you run their leadership and investment through a single institution, you drive political you know, decision-making onto evidential platforms. So, you know, I have Republicans and Democrats working together politically on this board. Yeah, so I have Trump supporters and Bernie yeah. Sanders supporters, yeah. Elizabeth Warren supporters on this board acting as a single unit, and Pete Buttigieg supporters. So, you know, you cleanse the politics, you bring everybody to a value proposition, you function on evidence, and then you challenge people to be leaders. Have you ever thought about running as a politician yourself? Not too often. Not too often. Um, you know, I think there's, yeah. You know, every now and then, you know, it, 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 it goes into my mind at the same level when I think I should be an actor in L.A. trying to get an Oscar. So it's, it's probably a, in the 1%, you know, if I'm sitting in, yeah. my mind's not, of, you know, the fascination can enter, but I think, yeah. I think they're, I think we need a new breed of political leaders. I think our political leaders need to be young, diverse, from a new generation. And I think what I'll do is try to build institutional grit so those leaders will have something to work with and be successful. Yeah, politi politics is brutal too, man. It's just, I mean, you can go to, like, it's crazy. Like, your whole life looks, look, it, it look, is being looked at, you know, and yeah. it's like any mistake that you would have, uh, that you made in the past is going to be brought to light in the in the present, uh, which is insane, yeah. dude, because nobody's perfect, you know? <laughs> so. Right, right. Well, you know, even in these jobs now, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, anger, uh, and people, you know, and, and, uh, you know, so, you know, you get in a, in a job like this, you get heavily covered by the press. You do yeah. get trolled. Same as being, you know, a mayor or member of Congress, but, you know, you, you definitely are part of the political conversation in the community. Yeah, definitely. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong, but you, with your venture background, it's pretty interesting. Uh, you, you've invested in, in robotics and things of that nature. But essentially what you're doing now is you're, you're acting as a venture fund, but really like almost as a, a nonprofit for the community, almost. Yeah. Right. So we're building funds up here. So yeah. we're working. So when you put your institutional leadership on a board, like for instance, you know, we're building, you know, a, a FinTech strategy around creating efficient services to the banking industry in the Sacramento region. It's in its infancy. But, you know, how do you build really cool, compelling fintech companies that help these financial institutions digitalize and get better at delivering services? You create a network of companies that can grow the economy in the region, and then at the same time, take your financial institutions and convert them into more efficient, productive financial assets for equity in the economy. So, you know, it's very much business modeling. So probably, you know, I learned business modeling from the University of Chicago. You know, I had like a little wow. Steve Jobs experience where, you know, I didn't go to the University of Chicago, but I had uh, friends that were in leadership there, and I would spend a lot of time, you know, hanging out with the University of Chicago and hanging out with their 
um, you know, business school work and sitting in on competitions at the university and hanging around their tech transfer office. I did the same thing with Purdue and the University of Michigan. And so, you know, University of Chicago has a, has a really sophisticated outlook on business modeling. So even though I didn't go there, I still got a chance to absorb their thinking. And same thing with Notre Dame and Michigan. Yeah. So I, 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 I kind of spent what I want. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. So I just said, you know, I think part of what you do in a job like this is, you know, uh, you get to spend time. You know, once you're establishing a civic leadership model, your access to the most accomplished people is pretty high. And so you get a chance to interface with them and really learn from them. And, uh, and so basically what we do is we take the entire market, which we call the community a market, right? It's a marketplace exercise for a community. You take two and a half million people and you break it up into services and, and uh, productivity advantages and then you, you strengthen the market around its capacity and you take things to scale that maybe they're ignoring like we're working with UC Davis on a regenerative medicine platform and UC Davis is going to be um, one of the most talked about universities in the world in the next five to ten years. It's a little dormant in California in the shadows of the UCLA's and the Berkeley's but you know we're seeing UC Davis' scientific capabilities as being as good as any in the world but you know it's been a quiet university via culture so now we engage at university and say well it's expensive to be quiet your kids don't get jobs your foundation and capital campaigns get negatively affected by being quiet maybe we need to shake the old ag school off and move into this modern scientific platform and make healthcare systems more productive and deliver you know better patient care to people well, that has a profound effect on your healthcare industry, which in Sacramento employs 150,000 people. So it's like taking your healthcare system, your university, marrying an interface, coming up with what are the new technologies that will help, like, you know, sell platforms, and then, you know, how do you build an investment model at the venture level so these new technologies can come to the market, and then how do you take your larger stable institutions and do an overlay with them so they're getting more productive as well. I love that. Um, and uh, okay, so can, can you can you go more into? Uh, I want to talk about UC Davis just a bit, but you talked about business modeling at uh, at University of Chicago, which you know University of Chicago is very. Um, I've heard in many cases like people that go. I've heard people that go to Harvard and University of Chicago, and they said that Harvard has a brand, University of Chicago has the the actual academics. So that's what I've heard many times. Uh, uh, I think so. Real, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So, so tell me, like, wh wh what did what did you learn regarding business modeling at University of Chicago that's really helped you in your fund? I think a couple of things. First off, you you know you start to scale. So I think what happens a lot of times with with new ventures is you get them off the ground, and you're thinking about simple business models to get into um, the marketplace. And what happens when you do that and you start scaling? you know, and you start getting a chance to take on real capital, you go back to your original launch and you didn't situate yourself for real capital. So one of the things I learned at the University of Chicago is that you should launch a company to be essentially a multinational corporation. You know, the incorporating papers, the bylaws, the board structures, how you distribute shares, you know, what's your long-term outlook, because if you get hot, like an Uber, right, which did, was in 500 square feet in 2011, 
you know, what happens when you get hot and you take off and you got to go back and redo your incorporating papers and you got to go back and figure out who's really got what shares and what their values are. You know, a lot of your follow-on capital stops coming in when you can't figure out what your original incorporating model really looks like. And, you know, entrepreneurs are operating off of napkins and bubblegum a lot of times, too. <laughs> so building, building the company to scale from the beginning is one. Two, paying attention to differentiating. And then three, you know, paying attention to a narrow set of products that you can really scale. So try to do three things right. What can scale? What's your ability to disrupt? And avoid incrementalism. You know, a lot of times people will go out with a business and, you know, it's an incremental value. It's a 10, 20, 30% advantage over what's going on in the marketplace. You know, what I like what's going on at UC Davis with the regenerative medicine platform out there is it's literally transformative. You know, it could literally eliminate small molecules from the marketplace. It could eliminate, it could almost eliminate medicinal chemistry as a professional need in drug candidates. So, that's what really Let me stop you there. So what you're saying is from UC Davis, they're working on regenerative medicine and that medicine could eliminate the necessity to take any type of drug eventually. Is that what you're saying? Well, yeah. Cause yeah, I mean, yeah. basically, you know, when, when you, when, you know, if you take Celebrex and I take Celebrex, I'm, you know, 20 years older than you or 25 years older than you. I'm Irish. We're different ethnicities. We have different diets. Yet, if you had arthritis and I had arthritis, they'd give us the exact same drug, as if our chemistry was identical. Dude, you know, dude, so, this is what I've been trying to yeah. preach. This is what I've been trying to preach to people. Is like you can't like medicine is so screwed up. You know, it's it's yeah, yeah. So now you know you know uh, basically you know I'm not a scientist, so we're new at working on this platform. So I don't want to get over my skis and talking too much, but basically regenerative medicine is we take your own healthy cellular capabilities and feed it back to you so you can heal yourself. That's kind of a simple anecdotal explanation for it. So it's going to be, you know, really disruptive, you know, when you think about, you know, we could have the ability within our own cellular structure to cure our own illnesses. So instead of disease management, right, so Celebrex would yeah. be an example of disease management. So pharmaceutical companies are in the disease management business. They want to give you a high blood pressure pill or an arthritis medicine. They want you to take it for 35 yeah, years. In or, yeah. They want, yeah, they want and to give you statins. They want to give you beta blockers, all these things to manage symptoms. And doesn't really address the root cause. 100%. But why? So do you feel like UC Davis will, you know, the scientists that come out of UC Davis and the companies that begin... Uh, with the foundation of a UC Davis education, will uh, be attacked from the by the pharma industry. Uh, you know, once this starts disrupting the industry. Well, we'll see. I think actually, I think what's happening is I think you know, if you look at drug pricing, if you look at the pressure that Congress is going to put on drug pricing in the future, um, I think you're going to see pharmaceutical companies actually move in this direction. So I think I think it's a little like watching how automotive companies deal with mobility, right? I mean, I'm sure if you're Ford, General Motors, and Chrysler, you'd like to see the electric vehicle go away. You'd like to see autonomous and connected vehicles go away. But once it's obvious that they're not going to go away, you need to move in that direction. So I think big pharma is going to move 
in the direction that UC Davis is at, which is going to allow us to, you know, anchor our economy, but also support UC Davis scientists in their pursuit of excellence. But don't you think that would be uh, counterproductive for pharma companies if their main motivation is profit? If, if they're focused on regenerative medicine, something that you only need to take one time, as opposed to something you need to take like every day or twice a day or five times a day, wouldn't, wouldn't that be counterproductive to what their overall goal is? Well, they'll just be disrupted if they don't move into that direction. So I think it's coming. Yeah. They're going to have to. Exciting yeah. yeah, they're going to have to. And I think, I think, you know, one of the things that UC Davis has done a great job on is like gene editing, genomics. So, you know, once we uncovered uh, the gene and the DNA and we understood, you know, the sequencing behind them, it's only a matter of time when I think uh, the scientific community is going to solve these healthcare problems permanently instead of putting on a drug candidate the rest of our life. How do, how do you think, how far away do you think we are from uh, resolving um, sip, uh, disease management treatment? 10 years. 10 years. And you think we won't, yeah. we won't have the necessity for drugs at all? Well, I don't know about that, but I, I think the idea that you know, I'm going to give you something to manage a disease versus I'm going to put you in a more successful healthcare environment where your disease goes away. I think you're going to see a dramatic move towards ending disease versus managing disease. And I think, you know, there may not, maybe not every, you know, therapeutic need can be met that way, but I think you're going to see a big shift towards a much more healthier long-term outlook for people. So are you, are you most motivated in raising funds for life science companies uh, at this point? Yeah, I'm actually, you know, we're actually most motivated in, in supporting and raising money for companies that align with, with our region's economic model, right? So we're, we're, we also have a mobility center that we're developing. Uh, it's called the California Mobility Center. We branded it California instead of Sacramento because we want to be able to connect San Diego, LA, the Bay Area, Silicon Valley into a single mobility market. Uh, we also have the California Air Resource Board here, which is the official regulated market maker of carbon-free mobility. So the market maker is in Sacramento. Uh, we have a partnership with a, a group out of Aachen University in Germany called PEMMotion that's had tremendous success in Europe. We're their only U.S. location. So we'll be building, you know, uh, prototyping and ramp-up factory capabilities for the hardware in the electric, autonomous, and connected vehicle space. Um, wow. So we'll be building capital strategies around that. We'll be building capital strategies around UC Davis's regenerative medicine platform. But we're just scratching the surface at UC Davis. You know, the veterinary yes. school at UC Davis is one in the world. Yeah, see, I like these funds a lot more than some some other funds out there because, uh, you know, a lot of funds, you know, have like a, a they want a, like a, a really quick exit strategy, like maybe like really, really quick. Um, and you have more of a fundamental view, if I'm correct in assessing that. Um, of yeah. Like, obviously, you, you want there's always an exit. Right. But your, your view is like you're, you're investing in things that really impact the community exponentially. And as opposed to like, yeah. well, I just want to make as much money as I possibly can uh, and uh, and just exit with, with every company uh, as fast as I can. Um, I yeah, like that. It's, it's uh, got a little bit more venture personality to it. You know, we're, 
obviously, you know, people got to make money and they got to get their returns. And, you know, we want, we want returns to happen, but, you know, we also are trying to build an economic philosophy for the state capital of California and change our economy, right? So, you know, we've got, as I, as I mentioned before, it, it's, it's a tragic situation in the U.S. where, you know, one-third of the people have housing and food security, you know, and, and you know, we're going to bring down what's great about our nation if people aren't collectively working to change that. And you can't change that, in my opinion, through the government. That's got to be a civic initiative, and that change has to come from believing and empowering people. I love it. I love it. Um, what what initially got you into kind of uh, starting a fund or like becoming a, a venture, uh, you know, a venture uh, motivated company? Uh, what what like motivated you behind that? Is it because you really wanted to make a difference and there's there's exponential growth in, in this? Obviously, people need to make money, right? And I feel like you know, profit driven activities usually are more effective than nonprofit driven activities. Uh, a lot more effective right. can make more of an impact yeah. in fact. Um, and yeah. so, um, so, but, but what was your, you know, like, w w why did you start doing this essentially? Well, you know, I grew up in Ohio. So if you know anything yeah. about Ohio, it's the capital of America now. So I grew up in the heartland of America where, you know, uh, the union looked after you, you got a nice job at General Motors or Ford, you worked in the steel mills, you know, you uh, got health care benefits, a pension, you bought a nice little house, your kids went to a pretty good public school, and you could kind of take care of everybody, and the common man was doing really well. Uh, by the time I was about 16, you know, you could see that was going fast. When I was 16, my dad lost his job, really never got another job in his life you know uh, he worked but never really had a meaningful job with you know real benefits and a pension again and that's what's going on in west virginia and ohio and michigan that's the backbone of this trump phenomenon that there's you know millions of americans in the midwest that are being left behind they're being left in desperate situations they have no hope and then you know they start grasping for straws on how to get out of the situation that they're in and, you know, coming up in Ohio, you know, I uh, started in the inner cities in Cleveland. I did gang intervention work. You know, I was the head of economic development in Toledo, Ohio. And then, you know, it just dawned on me. I started to see these business models being kicked around between CEOs because cities couldn't fix their economy. And the CEOs had some responsibility to the community. Well, what if they fixed the economy? So during that period, I was worried, like, well, the CEOs aren't going to know anything about their cities. You know, they're not going to know anything about kids and gangs. Uh, they're not really, you know, they're not always going to be that empathetic with a working guy walking off his job in Lordstown, Ohio, you know, with the GM closure, never getting another job again. Being a UAW member, meaning you're blackballed at Walmart and McDonald's, you know what I mean? So the Target store is not going to give you a job if you remember the United Auto Workers because they're not going to want to be unionized. So these guys come out, lose their union job, can't get a job even at 12 bucks an hour, fall through the cracks, and then the socioeconomic effects are staggering on those communities. So, you know, I grew up like that. So, you know, once I got educated, I worked in the corporate world four years, and I was like, well, you know, I could be sitting in some big corporate office sucking up stock options and doing well for myself, or I could 
take business acumen, bring it to a civic model, and try to change the future of other people. Yeah, I always, I, I always say, you know, I think, you know, if somebody's going to change the world, it's definitely going to be an entrepreneur. Uh, it's definitely going to be, you yeah. know, you, you know, so like, you know, you could have a scientist that has a cure, but you need, you need a way to market it. You need a way to get it out there because, and, and, and sell the thing, you know, <laughs> sell the thing that the scientist yeah. has, has done, you know? Um, and, uh, and, and another thing too, is like, who's, who's hiring these scientists to, to, uh, and has a, a mission and, and, and leadership cap- capabilities to, guide that scientist or whoever it is that that's creating these uh, miracles or miraculous things. Um, you know, you, you need, you need entrepreneurs that the, 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 the person is going to be, uh, that changes the world is going to be an entrepreneur. That's what I think. So. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I think we need, we need a combined set of efforts around those entrepreneurs. Right. So, and everybody yeah. can be an entrepreneur. You can be an entrepreneur if you're a city manager, right? So one of the things that I did when I was in Phoenix 10 years, and if you ever want to interview uh, an amazing leader, Michael Crow, uh, the president of Arizona State University, he is a phenomenon in higher ed, and he believed in what he would call enterprise models, right? So his philosophy was everything's an enterprise. So you're the dean of the business school. Well, that's an enterprise. I'm going to give you some money. I'm not going to give you a lot of money. And then I'm going to give you the freedom to take your business school in a direction where it's self-sustaining and enterprise-oriented. And if you look at the, the W.P. Carey School in Arizona State, you know, it was a party school. And uh, Crow hired the number two guy at Wharton, I believe it was Wharton, brought him in, gave him the business school to run, and said, you know, you're not at Wharton, but you're going to get to do whatever you want. You're not going to be restricted around the Ivy League model. Do whatever you want. And, you know, that business school at Arizona State and that executive MBA program, you know, gets bumped into the 15th, 18th, top 20, top 10 ratings in the U.S. by doing nothing other than changing culture and philosophy of that business school and then bringing in a really talented person and empowering them to make freedom decisions versus putting them in rules and regulations that have been traditional to the higher education institution. So I think the same kind of disruption can occur at cities counties, hospitals, universities, community colleges, K-12 systems, you know, give greater, you know, lift the regulatory rule process over these institutions, give them enterprise objectives, and then, you know, let the talent rise to the top. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, you said anybody could be an entrepreneur. Uh, I, li- I like to hear that because a-, a lot of things going, uh, there's a lot of these uh, philosophies going around that entrepreneurship is, is a made trait, not a, uh, or a born trait, not a made trait. And, uh, and I'm, I'm sure you disagree with that. Do you feel like, so the guy that was part of a union and now can't get a job anywhere, uh, that, do you think that guy can, can start a, a business and make it, make it for his, himself, his family and his community? Yeah, absolutely. I do. And I think, and I think what we have to do in certain parts of the country, in certain cultures, right, we have to demystify this, right? You know, so if you're not from California, or if you're not from, you know, a high-performing market, I mean, if you grow up in Ohio, where's a venture capitalist, right? I mean, you could, you could honestly say Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, West Virginia, there might not be 10 legitimate venture capitalists in that entire network of states. 
So these these things like venture capitalists and angel investors and accelerators and new codes and all that, you know, it sounds like you're going to go to national and be a country and western star. You know, um, it doesn't sound like <laughs> something that's at your fingertips. You know, and one of the things that I think, and I'll go back to Arizona State and University of Arizona, but you know, there's entrepreneurship in every nook and cranny on those institutions. And I think that we were in Ohio and mid in Michigan. I think if a kid was in first or second grade, and we started talking about owning your own enterprise and what it takes to launch your own enterprise, and by the time they're in fifth or sixth grade, you know, instead of doing science fairs, they're doing you know business formation strategies. And same thing in eighth grade. I mean, by the time they're 16, 17, 18 years old, you know, they're going to have such a familiar concept with forming a business and launching it that I, I think I think enterprise is the natural intuition of people. Yeah, I think so too. Um, it's interesting that you bring up the education system and, and how the education system isn't really geared for entrepreneurs. Uh, it's really geared for, um, you know, kind of scientific endeavors. Um, and I think uh, you're right. I mean, if, if we if we can treat like our education system like we could treat our the ideal healthcare system that we want to have, uh, we would figure out mm-hmm. what in what the interests of, of the uh, of the kids are, and then have them pursue whatever interest they, they're most they're most motivated by, um, as opposed to like oh yeah you have to learn this other thing that you probably you'll probably forget and you don't really want to. Uh, you know, engage in because it's just boring or to you, you know, and it might be not boring to the person right next to you. It may be like, oh, wow, I want to learn about, you know, uh, you know, the Krebs cycle and biology or something like that. But that, that person wants to learn about that. But then you have people that uh, they just want to freaking sell stuff, you know, <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 Like one of my friends, um, John Bergman, who formed the OnCue of um, financial in Scottsdale. I mean, it, it's probably a billion dollar or more company now. He started at 26. I mean, he was like when he was 16, he grew up in Seattle. He was like the greatest door to door Britannica encyclopedia salesman in the country or some crazy number like that. Like, like he was like leading Britannica encyclopedias on door to door sales. And I can't tell you how many entrepreneurs I met that sold stuff door to door. My son's in business in LA. Uh, he's becoming very successful. I mean, he was a kid that like, when it came time to get like, you know, the little league jerseys and the parents would say, well, your son can sell these uh, candy bars or you can give us a hundred bucks. He would be eight or nine years old and literally throw himself on the floor crying. if we let him, if we didn't let him go sell the candy bars, you know, it wasn't, it, to oh, him, you know, he, he wanted, and then he had to win, right? He would be, He'd come back every day wanting to know what the contest was for who sold the most candy bars. And one time uh, he was competing with a kid for these candy bar sales and the kid's dad took his candy bars to work and sold a bunch of candy bars, right? So then I came home from work, he was about eight years old, and he was like, you've got to go to work tomorrow and sell X amount of candy bars so I can catch his kid. And I said, well, I can't do that because I'm the CEO, I'm the boss. I can't walk in and, and do that. All my employees will feel obligated to buy these candy bars. And he was apoplectic. I mean, he threw himself on the floor that I wouldn't go to work and catch the advantage the other kid got because his dad went to work and sold candy bars. 
And, you know, he's always been, you know, a born entrepreneur like that. And I think, I think one of the other things I did when I was in Cleveland, I worked in the inner city, you know, and we had these kids in gangs, and what were they doing? They were doing the only way they knew how to survive, right? They were, you know, on the streets hustling. And uh, we would bring them in, as, you know, give them a GED, put them through these leadership, and then we would try to train them for the construction fields. These kids would buy a pickup truck as soon as they got trained and grab their buddy and leave and go put in windows as a small business. You know, it was intuitive for them to be entrepreneurs. We just weren't giving those kids positive options to act on their entrepreneurship. And I think, and I think not only do I see everybody being an entrepreneur, I think entrepreneurship is really the solution for the social equity issues in our economy. Yeah, I think, uh, so I was just talking to um, uh, a guy that owns a, a, a company that um, allows advertisers to pay uh, users on a platform that exchanges currencies globally. So like, for instance, like if I want to send you money right now, I can send you money in like a second. Uh, and then, but also if you're in the Philippines, I can send you money in a second as well. And, uh, I like this notion. His, his like mission was like, everybody can be an entrepreneur. Everybody across the globe can be an entrepreneur. And, um, it's actually putting power back in the hands of, of people that don't want their data shared with everyone. Uh, like like what people go through on Facebook is like their data is being shared everywhere. Um, and so I believe, yes, I believe too that everybody can be an entrepreneur. Um, you know, so th there are certain traits that, that kids have that help you identify whether they're, they're, they, they would be a great entrepreneur. But you said everyone can be an entrepreneur. That's if they have the desire to be one, right? That's right. Yeah. Awareness. They, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So they have the desire to be one. But do you feel like there's levels of entrepreneurship that not everybody can attain? Like just like like in like the NBA, not everybody can be LeBron James or Kobe Bryant. Or do you feel like no, everyone can get to that level if they work hard enough and they keep improving themselves? Well, you know, I don't know that everyone can reach an IPO. So I do think you're probably you're probably differentiated by resources and environments, right? So one of the things when you're in California, you know, the environment in California, I mean, if you go down in Silicon Valley and you go, hey, I, I want to take a, a company public. I want to build a digital enterprise, and in three to five years, I want to do an IPO. And then you lay out a return scenario that seems extraordinary, right? If you do that in Silicon Valley, people don't close their mind to it. They keep their mind open. Why do they keep their mind open? They've seen it a hundred times. But if you're in, you know, yeah. Cleveland, Ohio, and you lay that out, no one's ever seen it before. Buffalo, never seen it. Yeah. Rochester, never seen it. You know, so you can go through, you know, dozens and dozens of, you know, Milwaukee. How many IPOs come out of Milwaukee? So what happens in these markets is the cultures limit people by by, you know, imposing their own biases on the potential of others. And that's why Silicon Valley has been so successful is because, you know, if you have a big dream and you gravitate to California and Silicon Valley or Silicon Beach in L.A. or parts of San Diego or even our community, Sacramento, if you start talking about scaling and doing an IPO, we believe you because we've seen it. In these other markets, they haven't seen it. I just had uh, one of our local companies, Stem Cell Express, 
uh, was formed in 2010 with 9,000 bucks. And the entrepreneur, she holds 100% of the company, and its current valuation is $200 million. Now, Jeez. in the Midwest, nobody, nobody would believe that would be possible. You know what I mean? So when we think in five about, years? you know, the in five years? she did in 10. Yep. 10, she did in 10 years. Oh, she did in 10 nine years. Grand. Okay. Well, that's still impressive. A science enterprise, yeah. not digital. So very tough to scale a science enterprise. Wow. She's definitely a special person for sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. What's so special? What's so special about her? Why did she succeed that that such a high level? I think I think she was very methodical, and I think she was very focused. You know, um, so I think she took a very methodical and focused approach. And if you know, if she got a lot of you know, um, she got multiple feedback on her approach. You know, you know that's the key thing too about being an entrepreneur. You know, you got to be a little stubborn. You know, but you can't be so stubborn that you can't can't take feedback. You know, so I would describe her as determined and open-minded. So when she felt she was right, you know, she trusted her instincts, and uh, you know, she's built a pretty impressive company here in the Sacramento area. Wow, two hundred million in in uh, in ten years, privately owned. That's incredible. Uh, yeah, hundred percent. Um, yeah, yeah I, would I would definitely. And 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 you uh, and and does she want to take that to like a billion dollars or like, what did she what does she want to do with that? I, yeah, I, I think she's probably focused on quarter to quarter, month to month. You know what I mean? I think she's focused on her company getting better, attracting more talented people. I don't know that, and I and that was one of the things I learned at the University of Chicago. You know, you got to be able to look downfield where you're going with your business model. You don't want to get caught looking at your feet. They used to say that all the time. Don't get caught looking at your feet. Um, you know, being being too current, too methodical. So you have to have that balance between being able to be methodical and and staying conscientious on your business plan and business model, and still having the ability to look up and having a bigger view of where you're going. All right. All right. Cool. Well, hey, you know, this was an interesting, very insightful conversation. Um, I'd love to do another conversation with you, uh, you know, maybe in person one day. Uh, that would be great. Sure. We maybe have better mics here. <laughs> and uh, I have a, a podcast room in, in Irvine, California. Um, and but, you know, we can always go go there, too. But uh, I, I have a, a meeting coming up uh, at 11, around 11. But so if somebody wants to get a hold of you, say an entrepreneur is listening to this podcast, uh, and they want to get a hold of you, or maybe somebody that would be valuable to you. How would they get a hold of you? Well, you can send me an email at bbroom b r o o m e at selectsacramento.com, or hit me up on LinkedIn, Barry Broom. Uh, you can hit me up on LinkedIn. Awesome, awesome. Hey, we'll look forward to conversing with you again soon. It was a pleasure speaking with you.